at Trinitas Church, as I introduce our passage today, I want you to step into an alternate universe with me for just a moment. I want you to imagine a universe wherein every single great athlete, if they had the choice, could choose to play high school athletics for the rest of their lives. Okay? Just follow me here. So what this means is, Tom Brady, during his senior year in high school, could have chosen to simply play endless high school football. And maybe even be the state champ for decades to come. Okay, imagine that. I bet that most of us would look at that and say, man, what a waste of talent. What a waste of human ability. See, a man as good as Tom Brady is in his particular position in football ought to be playing against the best, right? Not only should he be playing against the best, we would say he should be playing with the best because those high school receivers will never do justice to the way he can thread that football in catching it, receiving it. Friends, I think we think the same way about our gifts in the church. It has not been infrequent for me to hear from people that their senses, that their gifts are not being sufficiently employed, utilized, or put to some special end. And the wonderful thing about the passage we're about to read today is that God cares significantly more about your graces. That is to say, He cares more about your virtues in the Holy Spirit than He cares about your gifts. See, great gifts, like Tom Brady's football playing ability, belongs with other greatly gifted people. Great graces... Virtues in the Holy Spirit belong with those who lack them. This is a radical difference between the way the world thinks and the way that our God teaches us to think. In fact, when we have this idea that the greatest expression of our gifts is that for which we live, God himself does not live up to that sort of measure. Have you ever considered how much power God has? How much sheer awesome power the Lord has. And then you look at human history. Would it be hard to say, man, God has really not lived up to his potential. He could have made bigger mountains, done more mighty things, performed more wonderful miracles. Evidently, our God himself cares far less about the manifestation and expression of his greatest possible feats of power than he does about the manifestation of his grace and his love, and these attributes that we may share in common with him. With that in mind, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, rather, 12, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 31, through 13, verse 3. And when we do, we are going to see the difference between loving the graces of the Holy Spirit and loving our gifts. And given that this is a tough one, let's bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Mighty God, we come to you as a people obsessed, obsessed with reaching our potential. We are taught from the youngest ages that reaching our greatest potential is some sort of grand feat in this life that's supposed to be satisfying. And yet, Lord God, you confront us with the fact that you care far more about our character than we do. 
Lord, I pray, therefore, that you would remove the defenses in our hearts, reorient our minds in the way that we think through your scriptures, conform us to the image of Christ, and Lord God, conform us to your character. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. Amen. If you will open your Bibles with me, therefore, we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 and following, and when we're done, I'll say this is God's word. And you may respond, thanks be to God. We'll sing a short verse together, the glory of Patri. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This is God's word. Trinitas Church, we all suffer from this insidious tendency to believe that those who are greatly gifted are necessarily greatly virtuous. We have a tendency to be deceived that in pursuing excellence in our gifting, excellence in doing those things that we have some special aptitude for, we are therefore becoming more Christ-like. This is simply not true. And the passage before us confronts us with this truth. Paul introduces the topic by saying, earnestly desire the greater gifts. I want to comment on this briefly. This might seem contrary to what Paul said in chapter 12, verse 11, where he said the Holy Spirit is the one who gives gifts according to his will. What then would be the point of greatly desiring the better ones? Not only that, we've been told not to disparage our own gifting. And if we're greatly desiring the greater gifts, it might seem like we're downplaying the virtue of the gifts we already have. I think the key to understanding this passage is that... um, The list of gifts that Paul has just spoken of in verses 29 to 30 are not gifts that you might have, but people whom you might meet, people whom our church might have. In other words, a church that currently lacks a minister ought to greatly desire one, a gifted teacher and preacher. A church that lacks a musician ought to desire those greater gifts that will loan themselves to worshipful ministry. We ought to desire gifts in our church. It's not to say that we shouldn't desire them ourselves, but oftentimes we can't change the ones we have. And we ought to have the understanding that when we can't, it's just as well to desire a gifted person who does. But Paul says there's even a more excellent way than desiring gifts. This more excellent way has to do with desiring the graces of the Holy Spirit, that we might be more like Christ. That's the more excellent way, a pursuit of sanctification and holiness. You and I cannot pursue being a prophet or being an apostle. But we can pursue Christ-likeness. With that being said, there are four, maybe five contrasts between gifts that we tend to hold in high esteem 
And that supreme grace of love that renders us the more like Christ person. We'll consider each one in turn. The first one is this, and I'll have you know this basic point. Love, friends, is not a manner of speech. It is not a mode of delivery. It simply is not those things. The way Paul puts it is like this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We will talk at great lengths about what this gift of tongues is when we arrive in chapter 14. I'll note in passing, the gift of tongues is a linguistic gift. It's either the tongues of men, those human languages, or I would submit by way of hyperbole or exaggeration, angelic languages. Why does Paul allude to the tongues of angels here? Some have suggested that when people are speaking inarticulate sounds that no one recognizes they're speaking in angelic language. I don't think that Paul means to even imply that here. Paul's using a literary device known as hyperbole. He's saying that even if I could speak in all the languages of men and even still more had a language of heaven, angelic languages, it would be to no avail if I lacked love Paul does this argument from reality to hyperbole again and again. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, friends, there's no spiritual gift of omniscience. I'll have you know, no one has that. But Paul's saying, even if I did have this impossible thing of knowing everything, but lacked love, it would do me no good. Funny thing about angels, friends, is that when you encounter them in the Bible, they seem to be able to talk to anyone. Angels seem to be able to meet people of any nationality and be able to communicate with them immediately. It's a funny thing about angels. Their very name, angel, it means messenger. And apparently, if they can do anything well, it's speak. In fact, angels, whether they encounter prophets, Simple shepherds, unbelievers, or even animals, they seem to be able to get their point across. It's an appropriate reference for the Corinthian people. The Corinthians had a fascination with rhetoric or the ability to deliver a message well and to be understood. And the baseline of being compelling, strong and powerful in eloquence is that you know how to speak a language. You ever hear someone try to make a profound point when they're speaking in broken English? Doesn't sound as good, does it? Doesn't sound nearly as good. This people, however, mistook glorious, eloquent speech for love, and it's easy to do. It's very easy to do. The Bible tells us that how we speak is important, and it can be one of the ways that we express our love for someone. We should let our speech be seasoned with salt, but the reality is eloquent speech is not love. It can say, therefore, in Romans 16, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Friends, do you know that there are people in this world who have a gift and power of communication that is profound, that tickles your ears? And yet it is no indication whatsoever that they love you. Recently at my favorite coffee shop, I was talking with one of my friends. She's something of a regular. 
She loves to talk about politics, and I'm always kind of skirting the topic. She brought up how the current president that we have is so lacking in any grace and communication, and I think most would tend to agree with that. She then explained how she just misses the eloquence of our former presidents. Before anyone thinks that I'm, I'm casting my vote before you for one or the other, I didn't vote for the present or the previous president. It's not about that, friends. But I had to confront this woman with this truth. Just because a politician speaks well does not mean that politician has love as his motivating force. The previous president who spoke so well has on his watch the abortion of millions. The slaughter of millions, though he tickled our ears, had no indication of the depths of his love for his fellow man. I remember when I was in debate in college, it actually started to wear on me. The goal was always to be compelling, no matter what side of an issue you were discussing. And I felt like it left college students thinking that at the end of the day, rhetoric is an end in itself. Being compelling is an end in itself. And there is no truth to be defended. Kind of drove me nuts, to be honest. Friends, I would have you know that those who are well-spoken may be, as it were, angelic speakers in our ears, but the fact is, they are nothing more than noisy gongs clanging cymbals if they have not love. It's empty. My heart question for you, therefore, is, are you pursuing angelic speech? To put it simply, are you pursuing becoming a person who can speak well to your coworkers, to your friends, and to your spouse? Are you pursuing a polished eloquence with which you present yourself? I need to confront you with a certain truth that does not necessarily make you any the more loving. Do you desire most of all from other people and from your friends that they have a grace of communication with you? They have the ability to make you feel good by their very tone and very words. I would simply have you know this does not mean that they love you. It doesn't mean these things. All of this requires that we reflect on our God himself in the wonderful gospel with which he has loved us. You know, the funny thing about God is that he has not always chosen those who have an angelic grace of speech and communication to tell others the truth. I need to tell you this because if you actually read Ezekiel, you would not come away thinking you would like this guy. He was rough around the edges. He was very different. Our God's manner of loving us is not with words of silk, smooth in all of their applications. Sometimes he does not communicate at all. Sometimes he communicates through a providence in this life where we are struck upside the head with difficult circumstances we don't think we deserved and we'd never elect to have. God speaks in some rather wonderful ways. And it isn't always with angelic speech. But the wonderful truth about the gospel is that beyond any mode of communication, God has a genuine affection for us. Deeper than words that sound good and feel good, we really want to have people around us who have a genuine love for us. Not that he is moved by our goodness, but rather that by his love he makes us lovable, makes 
us objects worthy of affection. Opposed to mere speech is reality. Reality, our God loves us in truth. And if all of his words were easy, we might begin to mistake his love for words that sound good rather than a genuine disposition of his being. Trinitas Church, I would have you know secondarily that love also is not information, it's not knowledge, and it's not truth. Love is not truth, friends. Simply is not. Paul communicates this in 1 Corinthians 13 too, in the starkest of manners. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge but do not have love, I am nothing. The gifts to which he alludes, or rather speaks directly, are gifts of information. The gift of prophecy is the ability to speak and declare secret truths, mysteries that reason alone could never discover. The gift of teaching is to have a gift in communicating knowledge or truths or information derivable from the written scriptures and God's revelation in man and in the world and to communicate these things to others. Paul speaks again by hyperbole, as we've said. In fact, no person has all prophecies or all mysteries or all knowledge. Paul will later say that we only know in part in this life But he says that even if we did have those things, it would be meaningless if we lacked love. At this point, some of you might be saying, but Brant, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love rejoices in the truth. That's right. And with the definite article, the truth, it's telling us that genuine love rejoices in the heart and soul of God's message to us, the gospel. But it doesn't rejoice in every truth equally. Friends, truth-telling isn't love. It isn't love because, first of all, not all truth is equally valuable. I could get up here every Sunday and preach nothing to you but God's righteous and holy law by which we were condemned, shut my Bible and leave, and I would have spoken all truth. I could get up here every Lord's Day and speak nothing but the justness with which we're all condemned, and it would all be true. But it wouldn't be the truth. In which love rejoices. We can go around sharing truths that are useless and relatively unhelpful. We call that being pedantic. When you're just putting out random information that happens to be true. It doesn't make you loving. Not only that, but we can truth tell with wrong motives. We can truth tell out of an insecurity, needing everyone around us to know that we're knowledgeable in our particular field, whether it be theological, or whether it be political, or whether it be whatever matter it is at hand. We can truth tell with wrong motives. We can truth tell with a lack of awareness as to how our truth is going to affect people around us. I'll tell you that when I do marriage counseling, usually... Almost every time this verse comes up, Ephesians 4.29, which says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Not every truth is equally relevant to every moment. Not every truth is an expression of love. You know one of the worst ways that we can amass truth 
is in such a way that we always lack true knowledge of ourselves. One of Augustine's famous works in a dialogue between himself and wisdom, he says, I desire nothing at all but to know God and to know myself. You know there's a way to acquire truth and still never know yourself? I'll put it this way, if most of the time when you read scripture, do devotions, or hear sermons, your first thought is, I can think of someone else who does X, Y, and Z. I can think of other people who suffer from the very things that you're talking about, and that is going to be my meditation, my speech, my talk, my focus. That's a way of amassing truth without ever touching on the truth of ourselves And it's really the very worst way to leave a meditation on Scripture. Constant meditation on the failures of others. Not only that, but we can have all sorts of truths in our minds without being satisfied with any of them. I call this the Athenian Syndrome. We read on Mars Hill in Athens that they would wait around, always waiting to hear something new. What does that indicate except that what they did know didn't really make them happy? Too often I see this same phenomenon with people interested in theology with a morbid interest in every controversy in the church because they have no real satisfaction in this truth that would cause their mouths to speak gladness and joy. All that comes to mind is the need to find a new controversy or a new thing. This is not love. This makes for a strange truth, friends. Sometimes, maybe even often, those who know far less actually know the truth far better. Let me say that again. Sometimes those who know far less than you and me know the truth far better because it leaves them praising. It leaves them joyful And it's contagious to others. Funny thing about truth is that even silence can be more loving than truth telling. Even silence can be more loving than truth telling. Jesus does this. Jesus on one occasion predicted that Peter would deny him. And Peter argued and said, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. He said, no, Peter, in fact, you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows. And then he says, no, no, Lord, you're crazy. I'll never do that. How ridiculous would it have been if After that third or second appeal, Jesus says, No, Peter, you will deny me! And really lost his cool. Jesus is just quiet. I've told you the truth, you've argued with it again and again, and I'm done. I'm done truth-telling. It was enough. Telling the truth unto no end is not always loving. This is a a point for a great heart question for all of us. Are you pursuing theological knowledge at all costs as if simply by doing so you're becoming a more loving person? I'll tell you right now, God cares far less for your knowledge and acquisition of it than he does about the graces of love and grace and patience and kindness and all the things that we're going to see next week when we meditate on the verses to come. He cares far more about those things. I would also ask you this same question. Do you count the people around you who love you to be the people who can tell you the sorts of information that you want to know? Do you do this with God? Too often I will meet 
people and find in my own heart an appetite that says something like this, Lord, if you would just tell me that I'm going to have success in this decision, if you would just tell me that my kids are going to be healthy for the next 20 years, Lord, if I only knew how much time I had left, then I would do X, Y, or Z. Have you said those sorts of things? If only I knew, Lord. It really counted the supreme act of love on God's part as giving you more information. Do you know what Jesus does constantly? He constantly tells his disciples, you already know everything you need to know. Do you know that? When Jesus told his disciples he would be leaving in John 14, 4, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you know where I am going. Well, I just told you, Lord, I don't. But Jesus says you do. The basic point here is this. This grand gospel that we believe is not about a God who tells us all the information that we want when we want it. As if the way to love people were by simply dispensing all truth and knowledge for which we have an appetite. God has many secrets that he holds close to his chest. Lest we ever confuse knowing with being loved. God has even told us that he has not chosen the wise or knowledgeable of this world to be the messengers of his truth. And he tells us again and again, you know everything you need to know. You know everything you need to know if you know the gospel. I would just ask you right now, are you hungry for some sort of knowledge out there and counting as precious little this knowledge? Your biggest problem is not any other person in this world. Your biggest problem is not your career. Your biggest problem is not being bored. Your biggest problem is none of these things. Your biggest problem is that you are a sinner and a rebel against the holy God, fallen in Adam, born into sin, hungry for ways to rebel against your creator. That is your biggest problem, nothing else. And the good news of the gospel is this, that biggest problem, though it merits eternal death, becomes absolutely nothing, a non-problem, when you know the truth that God sent his son into the world to die the death that you deserve, that you might be counted righteous in Jesus Christ, and that you've been given the Holy Spirit, that you might have victory over your sin. Do you understand that your biggest problems are solved if you believe that? The good news of the gospel is not that God gives us knowledge of everything we could ever desire. It's that he gives us supreme knowledge of everything we really need to know. This leads us to our third observation, friends. Love is not even faith. It's not inspiration. It's not the power to move people or reality. Those things are not love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul speaks of gifts of faith, miracle working and healing here. The power to overcome the insurmountable and the power to inspire others in so doing. Friends, those gifts are not love. They're not love, and it's not hard to see when you consider some of the most inspirational people among us. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across an advertisement for an inspirational speaker that's about 10 years old. 
This advertisement for an inspirational speaker speaks of one Lance Armstrong. Lance used to go around as an inspirational speaker, a man of great faith in himself and the ability to move whole mountains, the ability to overcome. This is what this advertisement says about this very expensive inspirational speaker. One of the world's best cyclists at the age of 25, Lance Armstrong's competitive nature helped him confront late-stage testicular cancer that had spread to his abdomen, lungs, and brain in 1997. He established the Lance Armstrong Foundation, now known by its powerful brand, Livestrong, to serve people and families affected by cancer. He returned to cycling and became the record-holding seven-time winner of the Tour de France. A leading advocate for the cancer survivors, Lance was appointed to serve on the president's cancer panel, an advisory group that reports directly to the president and represented cancer survivors worldwide at the United Nations this summer. Lance has raised more than $400 million for survivors in advocacy and was instrumental in the Proposition 15 in Texas, an initiative that allocated $3 billion for the fight against cancer, and so on, and so on, and so on. Being as we are ten years later, I'll bet no one in this room thinks of Lance Armstrong as being a paragon of love. In fact, in the books and documentaries, personal accounts of closest friends and wives, it's actually clear that this man who inspired so many, who was so charismatic, had such a power of belief in himself, was really a cantankerous individual to be around. Really not particularly loving or self-giving, and this is challenging, friends, because often we love most of all those who have bold, mighty stances on life and make us feel as if we too can overcome. See, if we were on a reality show, where we divided this room into two camps who were going to be warring tribes on an island, and uh, Lance Armstrong was in your camp, you need to understand this, friends. If it was 10 years ago, he'd be the leader. 10 years ago, if Lance would have said, we're going to build a hotel out of bamboo, you'd be like, yeah, I think we probably are. Lance said so. Let's get to hacking. It would make you feel special. It would make you feel powerful. That isn't love. Being inspired by people is not being loved by people. Being inspiring is not necessarily loving. I just ask you, are you committed to accomplishing great feats, friends? You're not necessarily loving anyone. I would even point out that certain men who uh, have committed many great feats in this life have really destroyed everyone around them because of it. I think of great athletes who gave their lives to their sport, but who have kids who feel unloved, overshadowed, inadequate. Great feats are not love, friends. I ask you furthermore, do you long to be led by, do you long to be inspired by someone great? I really will have you know that you are longing for something other than to be loved. This is where we ought to consider our God himself in the gospel. Do you know the gospel is not about God saving people by showing profound and powerful acts of his might? 
Almost no one who saw the wonderful miracles of God was changed by those miracles alone. Those people who walked through the parted Red Sea, who saw all of the Exodus miracles, are the same people shaking their fist at God not months later. Mighty, inspiring deeds do not save. They are not necessarily an expression of love. In fact, God's love is often quaint and simple. And in those very moments, the most overwhelming. When you read about the religious experience of medieval mystics, when they talk about moments of euphoric love for God and overflowing of a sense of love with him, they do not often occur in accordance with great charismatic people and events. They often happen in the most quaint of circumstances. One of the ministers who I love so much He's had one experience like that in his entire life where he just overflowed with a sense of deep union and joy with the Lord that was so overwhelming that it left depression on him and it never happened again. It never happened again. It wasn't imparted to him by some supremely gifted person. It was not the result of some grand act of his own. It came quietly. And so it is with the gospel. When God became human flesh, he walked as a common man who by his outward appearance had nothing to speak of him. But this leads us to our fourth consideration, which is perhaps the most surprising. Maybe you're prepared to admit that love is not a matter of delivery or speech. It's not a mere matter of truth-telling. It's not even about being great or inspiring But maybe it would surprise you to hear that love is not a matter of giving. It's not even a matter of self-sacrifice. And it's not even a matter of advocacy for other people. You can do all of those things and have not love. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. For those of us who are more practically minded, tend to emphasize the more, those tangible ways of blessing other people, it might come as a surprise to know that the gift of helping, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the gifts of giving and mercy are not necessarily expressions of love. This is such a hard one in our day. Major theologians, some of the most famous theologians in the world have suggested that the most loving thing to do for the American government would be to just abolish all third world debt. Does that sound loving? There's this naive sense on all of our parts that it is, but I would ask the question another way. Would it really be loving to remit the debt of the Parliamentary Republic of Somalia, who has, for about 10 years straight, been ranked as the most abusive government in the world? Would it be loving to increase their credit score? So that as they continue starving their people, fighting against them with some of the best weaponry in the world, they now have more money to do the same. Would that be loving? Giving is not always loving, friends. Giving more of what people insist they need is not always loving. Very often what we think we need most really isn't what we need most. One of the things I can tell you about Trinitas Church is this, that if what you believe you need most is a bowling partner on Saturday night, I don't know if we're going to be able to help you. If what you need most 
is someone to go to the movies with, I can't guarantee you're going to get that here. What I can tell you is that if you're in the hospital and you lack the ability to watch your own baby through the nights, in the last week we've seen upwards of 10 of our women go out to bless another woman in this church, spend the night at a hospital to be with her baby. This is what giving people what they need looks like versus simply meeting the appetites of the moment or the fleeting desires that we have for some sort of entertainment. I'm amazed by it. I want you to know that, Trinitas Church. I'm I'm blessed by you to see this. It leads us to the point that love isn't simply giving whatever people insist they need or that they want. Love is something more. Love isn't even self-sacrifice. This is a tough one. Because the supreme expression of love that we see in Christianity is God sending his son to die for us. And we might think, if I'm self-sacrificial, I must be loving. That's not true. It doesn't take much reflection to realize there are suicide bombers who are giving their whole lives, not out of love, but in pursuit of sensual pleasures, 30 virgins to be had in some life after this one. That sacrifice isn't love. Not only that, friends, but you cannot presume because you are doing something self-sacrificial that you necessarily have a loving disposition toward others. Even some of the most wonderful ministries standing up for the life of the unborn can be advocated by, and in a very self-sacrificial way, people who are not particularly loving. I'll bet some of you are even a little bit scared of doing pro-life ministry because you've seen examples like this. They're often thrust before us in the news. If you can find one person who's a pro-life advocate who seems to be a bit of a jerk, kind of makes the whole group look bad, doesn't it? I'll actually have to tell you, I've met some people like that. Some of the most divisive, proud, nasty people giving themselves self-sacrificially for the unborn. I want to encourage you that if you want to stand up for the lives of the unborn, we do a ministry at the end of this month on Wednesday the 29th called the Church at Planned Parenthood. It's a worship service. It's an outdoor worship service with the same songs that we sing today with many other churches around us. And it is a supreme expression of love where we really stand up for the life of those who are yet to be born. One of the wonderful things about Jesus is that he never counts his projects as so important that it gives him a right to be a big, huge jerk to those nearest to him. He doesn't. Jesus, in his giving himself for the world, is so patient with his disciples. He is loving to the people nearest to him, and he doesn't use his great world-changing feats even his self-sacrifice is a reason or an excuse to shame or to tear down those who have a lesser calling. I would simply ask you this hard question. Are you determined to give and to sacrifice? It's a good thing, but I ask you, do you have a genuine and deep and real love for those for whom you're ready to sacrifice? Because if not, it amounts to nothing. Do you long to have your concrete needs met above all else? You know, you might find someone who can do that for you, but doesn't really have any love for you. The secret to all of this is that mere service and sacrifice is not love unless it is service, serving people unto God. 
If the end and the aim and the goal of your service is anything less than to commit the objects of your service like an offering and a sacrifice unto God, it isn't love. And this even gives us a wonderful perspective on the cross. Divine love is not a matter of God giving us what we want. We all have too many apparently unanswered prayers to ever believe that. And get this, divine love is not even continual self-sacrifice for us forever. There is this romantic vision of love that sometimes even gets propounded in modern theology that Jesus died on the cross in such a way that he's going to pursue unbelievers forevermore until they believe in him, maybe unto eternity. This is a real theory. It's not true. Self-sacrifice in and of itself is not love. It's not. Jesus' death on the cross in and of itself is not love until and unless its aim is to turn us into gifts unto God, devoted unto him in our entire lives, made into his children. What this means is that Jesus' cross has a finite season to follow within which we may believe in him, trust in him, and there will come a point When that self-sacrificial death is no longer being offered to you, friends. Because self-sacrifice in itself is not love. Self-sacrifice that changes men and women into servants of Christ, that is love. Self-sacrifice that becomes a banner for us to sin for eternity in the face of God is not loving. What this means is that the love of God has consequences. It has a definite season and this age. It is your lifetime and no longer. If you want to know the God who loves, know that he takes seriously our rebellion against him. Seriously enough to send his son to die. And he died in love that those of us who respond may be God's children forever. He didn't die in apathy to buy us the opportunity to sin without end. So we'd better receive him. Maybe you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. I will have you know the Bible does not teach he is the sort of romantic lover who will go on for eternity as if his satisfaction were in you. He has loved us like the sovereign God who would have us know that our satisfaction is in him and we had better receive him. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, I pray, I hope and plead that you would not carry on in unbelief and rebellion, especially under a perverse and confused vision of love. Jesus came to save sinners and to change sinners, and we had better run to him. Trinitas Church, I say the same to you. I would simply ask you, is your aim, are your self-sacrificial deeds slated toward and focused on delivering people up unto God as a soothing aroma and an offering with which he is well pleased? Are you doing these things mechanically? Are you doing these things to win the favor of the world? Are you doing these things because you want to be moral? It's not the same thing. Let us therefore pray. Let us devote all of our behavior to God. Bow your heads with me. God, so many pitfalls of the human heart have been set before us. God, we beg you and we ask you that we would make, you would make us into lovers like you. 
First of all, those who know ourselves to be loved by you, know our biggest problems to be solved by you, and know therefore, God, that to love any other man, woman, or child means to direct them toward you, and to do so with some urgency, knowing that your love is not the sort of empty thing after which the world longs. That makes all of our deeds inconsequential. It is the sort of thing that makes this life utterly consequential, even pivotal, with regard to how we might devote and direct ourselves, whether to you or against you. Lord, your love is mighty, your love is powerful, it is counterintuitive. Lord Jesus Christ, smite us with it, overtake us with it. May we be real ambassadors of it. That this world might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray by your Holy Spirit. Amen.